From the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a good friend of the show, frequent guest as well, prolific writer. He's the author of the critically acclaimed Kings of Queens, Life Beyond Baseball with the 86 Mets. Also co-author of the highly acclaimed baseball autobiographies Out at Home with Glenn Burke, A Pirate for Life with Steve Blass. The New York Times bestseller, Mookie, Life in Baseball and in the 86 Mets. And Davey Johnson, My Wild Ride in Baseball and Beyond. He's an annual lecturer at the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. He co-authored After the Miracle of the Lasting Brotherhood of the 1969 Mets. His latest book, Two Sides of Glory, the 1986 Boston Red Sox, in their own words, features 13 of that team's members of what many consider the best Boston Red Sox team in history, revealing just how much that season means to them all these years later. It is a thrill to welcome back our friend Eric Sherman to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Eric. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be back. You know, your style of books are so interesting. And you start out as a pure autobiographer, as your first three books, as we mentioned, are single subjects. Glenn Burke, Steve Blass, Mookie Wilson. Then you do the King of Queens book about the 86 Mets. You go back to the biography genre with Davy Johnson and now back to back team centric books. And this team book is the first of the three about a team that didn't win a championship. So can you talk a little bit about your evolution as an author and what drew you to this project, which for me is such a great companion to the King of Queens? Well, uh, the evolution has been, you know, the first book I wrote with Glenn, Glenn Burke uh, was back in the mid 90s, uh, a very different kind, kind of book. Um, Glenn was the first ball, ball player uh, to come out of the closet. Um, and basically was blackballed from the game. And um, then I took a long break between books and uh, wrote a book with Steve Blass, um, a pitcher who had it all, one of the best pitchers in the game. And then overnight, um, what they, what is now called Steve Blass disease, couldn't throw the ball straight anymore. And, and then I did the book with Mookie. And that kind of changed everything because um, I was kind of entering into the world of the of the 86 Mets. Um, so that book was so well received and I got to meet a lot of Mookie's teammates, um, that I decided to do a book, a very personal book, um, with the key and most intriguing members of the 86 Mets. Turns out it was one of Davy Johnson's favorite books. And he said, you're the guy to uh, write my autobiography. Um, and then I kind of became known as like the Mets, like one of the Mets authors, uh, along with Matthew Silverman. <laughs> and uh, and um, my agent said, how would you like to do a 69 Mets book? And I said, man, there's been like 30 written about that team. And he says, well, our Chamsky wants to do a, a, a book on the 69 Mets. So you guys come up with a great angle and, and make it work. And we did, you know, with the angle being getting a, a group of the 69 Mets together to go visit Tom Seaver for the last time. Um, and, uh, and that takes us to this book, um, which you're right. It's very different. It, it's 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 similar to Kings of Queens. It's kind of like the companion book uh, to that one. Um, 
but it's different in that ultimately this team was not victorious. Um, but I thought it would be really intriguing um, to do an in-depth book and study on a team that experienced the very highest of highs and the very lowest of lows within a two-week period in October. No team was one strike away from elimination in the ALCS in a game five of the best of seven. And then 12 days later, um, they're at the other end. They're one strike away from eliminating the other team, in this case, the Mets. And they don't close the deal. And then they lose the next night, a couple of nights later. And so what effect that would have on these guys' careers and, and the rest of their lives and so I, I thought that would be a really intriguing story. And, um, and it turned out from the interviews, which were highly emotional, um, I certainly wasn't disappointed. You know, it's interesting that you said that, because one of the things that kind of intrigued me was one of the guys who seems totally haunted by it is Rich Gedman. And he says there's a pain that he carries. I, I just would appreciate this game so much more if I hadn't gone through the pains of 86 but then you ask him truly a great question. You ask him, did the losing the way the Red Sox did in the World Series take anything away from the euphoria he felt two weeks earlier when they beat the Angels? And his response was unbelievable. But it also got me to thinking that initially when this book came out, when, when it was called Two Sides of Glory, I kind of thought it was your way of making it the companion to the 86 Mets. But in hearing Gedman's response, I almost think it, it it's refers to the the high of the Angel series and the low of the Met series. So, am I correct in that? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's uh, the highest of highs with the Angels. I mean, Don, Donnie Moore on the mound, um, you know, was just overpowering against Dave Henderson. Uh, Henderson looked lost. Like, like he, it, it really looked, and, and you know, this, this would have ended the series uh, with the angels and, and he just looked like an old man, you know, he was hobbling. Everyone talks about Buckner, but Dave Anderson was playing hurt. And um, I mean, it was miraculous that he reached out and was able to drive the pitch that he did. I mean, it was very similar to Kirk Gibson shot in 88, if you think about it. And, and from there, you know, then the Angels, then they tie it. People forget this. Right. Then they tie it, goes into extra innings, and then Henderson has the sack fly in extra innings, and they go back to Boston. And, and the Red Sox knew that they were in the driver's seat and that they, there was no way that they would lose a game back in Boston. So I'm going to jump around for a few of the chapters and, and some of the personalities in the book. Um, you start the Dwight Evans chapter with a sentiment I'm sure that so many people feel when we look at athletes. You state, conventional wisdom has it that professional baseball players live a life of fortune and fame and are generally immune to the common and sometimes extraordinary struggles that beset the average person. You look at the era in which Dewey played, which was way before every athlete was on social media sharing their personal lives, and that only enforces that statement for me. But Dwight was struggling with two children at home who you know, had medical issues, and he'd even let his teammates know about it. Can you share how hard it was for him to play night in and night out and why he chose to keep it private? Well, he, he didn't want it to be a distraction. And um, it seemed to me, so um, 
Dwight Evans had uh, three children, a daughter uh, who was perfectly healthy and two sons, which with which is commonly referred to as elephant man's disease. Um, uh, it's NF, uh, neurofibrosis. And I think I have that right. But but anyway, it, what they had was commonly known as elephant man's disease. Uh, the one son I know had over 40 surgeries. Um, I mean, it was just horrific for... For, for for most of Dwight Evans' career, he you know was leaving hospitals. He was leaving his kids after they had surgery, and would go straight to the ballpark, sleepless nights. Um, and it seems to me that for as much as that obviously would affect him, it, he also rallied around that. You know, he it's you know Mark, it's so incredible, but. Um, I went to Ted Williams baseball camp when I was 16. Uh, it's a camp up in Massachusetts. And we had a field trip to Fenway Park one night. And that night, Dwight Evans hit two home runs. Now, little did I know, it was 1982. Little did I know that, you know, three decades, more than three decades later, I'd be sitting in Fenway Park with Dwight Evans talking about that game. Well, that game, before he went to the ballpark was one of these instances when he was in the hospital with one of his sons and his son, like right out of, you know, the pride of the Yankees with Lou Gehrig, he promises his son that, yeah, I'll hit two home runs for you tonight. (laughs) And he goes out and he does it. And it wasn't the only time that Dwight did that for one of his sons and also for, um, at least one other child that he visited in the hospital while he was visiting his his kids. Um, so he used that, I believe, as a mechanism to really concentrate on his game. Um, but it's it's right out of Hollywood. It's, right. it's it, incredible. Right. It was that, that struck me as incredible as I was reading that chapter that there wasn't just one Babe Ruth story. There were actually three. And and the fact on August 30th, 1982, you happened to be there for the time he hit two home runs for Tim was phenomenal. But the other one that you mentioned even had a great postscript to it. So the the, the one you alluded to, the, the person in the hospital, I believe his name was Dan and he was suffering from liver cancer and you know and his prognosis was not good. And, you know, he said, could you hit a home run for me? And, and he did. But do you remember the postscript to that story, like, years later? Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Uh, it was the Red Sox uh, television station, I believe, Nesson. They they were doing um, a follow-up story on it, you know, something like 25 years later. And uh, they flew Dwight Evans up from Florida um, to kind of, you know, sneak up behind the kid while he was on camera, well, not a kid anymore. He was a grown man who had survived. And Dwight uh, just offered him so much encouragement to, you know, to live on and, and get past his ailment. And so all those years later, something like 25 years later, uh, Dwight Evans comes up behind him on camera. Um, and, you know, the young man just broke down and cried. And, um, you know, I, he, he, he may not had been alive today without the encouragement that Dwight Evans had given to him. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And and you make that observation, and it's interesting because there are other mentions in the book about some of the other real-life things that you know mere mortals face. Bob Stanley's dad, Wade Boggs' yeah. dad, Rich Gedman's sister and dad all passed away during that 1986 season. And it's a central theme to a lot of your books, and I, I think that's why they're so successful, as you seem to humanize all of your subjects. 
And I think you might do that more than any other writer that I've read. I'm wondering, is that a skill that you've learned or is that just something that's in your DNA? I think it's in my DNA. I just got off a Zoom call with Jeff Perlman, uh, who wrote The Incredible, The Bad Guys One, which was really, I think, um, well, it was certainly the first of the 86 Mets books, which, uh, you know, just transcended all, all the others. And, um, forever making Raphael Santana, a airline, uh, favorite. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So Jeff, you know, he admitted, he's like, yeah, I'm more cynical. And, (laughs) you know, you tend to look at, um, I don't think he said warm and fuzzy. I, I think I said that, but, but he, but he said that he couldn't write a book like, I write, and I listen. I can't write a book like him. I mean, he is a phenomenal writer. Um, so anyway, what I'm getting at is, um, uh, he would have taken a different approach with the Red Sox book um, that I, I wrote. In fact, he had a great title for it. His uh, yeah, this is what I, what I wanted to get to. Um, he would have entitled the book uh, "The Good Guys Lost." Instead, (laughs) because they were such great guys, you know, they, you know, they were so unlike, you know, like, you know, me, I love the 86 Mets. Some of them have, have become really good friends of mine. And, uh, but you know, the Red Sox, you know, they weren't the hard partying animals that, you know, they, they didn't have a scum bunch or anything like that. I mean, these were guys that were very involved with the Jimmy fund and, and, you know, Jim Rice was rescuing a little kid that got hit with the ball, saved his life, got hit with a ball in the stands, played in a blood-soaked uniform. I mean, these were good human beings. Right. And um, so I just thought that Jeff's t- title was, <laughs> I mean, I, I if I had to do it all over again, maybe I would have renamed the book. <laughs> but but uh, two, two Sides of Glory, I think, really goes to the heart of it that, uh, I mean, they were, I mean, that. ALCS right. against the Angels, and their entire regular season was magical, magical. Oh, and plus the fact, I really do think it serves two purposes, as I think it's a perfect companion book to the Mets, so it's like that other side of glory in that respect as well. So I think your title is great. No no disrespect to Jeff, another one of my favorite writers. Um, but another you know thread that comes throughout the book is the the absolute love that Red Sox Nation has for their team, but in a very snarky type way. So, like, I think the the absolute quote that might nail Red Sox Nation perfectly comes from Bob Stanley in the book. And he said that he was by the bullpen, and a guy yelled out, Hey, Stanley, you're worth every penny you make. It's the dollars I'm worried about. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, that is a phenomenal quote, but... You know, could you describe, you know, the feeling you got when these guys were talking about the Red Sox fans? Well, I I think they respect the fact that the fans up there truly do live and die with the team. Uh, and they always have. And but there is a part of the Red Sox fans DNA. And, you know, the media up there certainly contributed to it. More in the 80s, I, you know, I lived up there in the mid 80s. I went to school up there. I worked up there for a while and I saw how it almost felt like, you know, not not Peter Gammons, but some of the others. um, It was almost like it was better copy 
if the Red Sox blew it again. And, you know, it, they lost in 46 with Ted, Ted Williams. They, they lost in seven games. They lost in seven games in 67 to the Cardinals. They lost in seven games in 75 to the Reds. Uh, they blew a 14 game lead to the Yankees in 78. Um, so they always came up short in the end. And, um, there was a part of that DNA that always expected the worst. And what made this team, I think, different was that, uh, so they had their big lead at the, you know, at the mid midway point, but then a, a guy that gets derided, Calvin Chiraldi comes out of nowhere. They bring him up. He was a starting pitcher in the Mets system. Then he was in the Ojeda trade. Red Sox convert him into a reliever in the minors he comes up in July uh, when their bullpen you know, has some injuries. And I, I mean, he was the talk of the town for three months. He had an ERA of 1.4 something just through lightning. I mean, they, they didn't have anything like him in their bullpen. And it, it the city was like, you know what? We're not going to blow this one. We're not going to blow it to the Blue Jays or the Tigers or the Yankees or whoever. You know, it was a good division back then, really good, the best in baseball. And, you know, they once they got past the Angels, um, you know, the Red Sox were you know, the headline news like every night. Uh, and uh, and that gets lost. You know, with the Buckner play and the and uh, you know Shiraldi and Stanley and McNamara's decisions and all that, it, and and I've always wanted to do a book on this team because I just felt like that got lost. And and when I did the '86 Mets book, Kings of Queens, I'm like, you know, the other side of the story's got to be told the right way, and and so my style, uh, it's to meet with these guys in person no matter where they're living so i can read the body language i can look into their eyes i can i can get a good sense of how they're reacting to my questions so much better than doing it over the phone and i think that really comes out in the books that i write it absolutely does and, and you know on top of that you add in the fact that you know dewey evans played in both the 1975 world series and the 86 he only got to be on you know play in the world series obviously rice was on there and that's another story how you know six games before the season ends the best player gets hit and is out of the yeah. world series um but when you speak to rice it, and here, here's the other interesting thing so you know I, I did a book on a team that also lost the 1979 rangers and yep. you know had you know for me had the the rangers never won the cup in 94 that 1979 team might have been the most beloved team in, in the history of the franchise um yep. rice has a very interesting take when he starts talking to you and he basically goes position by position with yeah. the 2004 team and i i found it absolutely incredible when the matchup of the position between Jim Rice and Manny Ramirez comes up, can, can you retell that that little interaction you had with Jim Rice? So Jim Rice is one of the m most difficult interviews in sports. Yep. He's he's had a combative relationship, you know, especially when he was a player uh, with reporters, and a couple of times, you know, it got a little physical, and so you have to kind of be careful. And so I was looking for, you know, I had my questions, but. I, I needed to make him feel comfortable with me. So as it turned out, 
he decides he wants to play a game. And I'm like, this is fine. I went off script with Lenny Dykstra. Uh, I went off script a little bit with oil cam Boyd. that the, you know, just making these meetings as natural as possible. Um, I love that. So he wants to play a game. He, he's like, you know, everyone's talking about these recent world championship teams, you know, and, and, you know, the first one in 2004, uh, everyone's saying what a great team that was. Well, um, the 75 team was better. Let's go position by position. So I'm like, okay. So, you know, I, I, I hesitated first with first base and he jumped on me. He says, you see, you know, like right away, you know, we had, we had Ustremski at first and, and, and then when he got to left field, he's like, everyone's talking about how Manny Ramirez, you know, is better than me. No, 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 no. You know? And, um, I mean, he really believes that, you know, he was the better player than Manny Ramirez. Now we know now that Manny probably had some help. Um, whereas, you know, Rice, uh, I mean, I don't even think Jim Rice lifted weights. He was just one of these freakishly strong guys. Um, and uh, kind of like Dave Parker, you know, I understand he didn't really lift weights either. You know, I mean, he was just so freaking strong. And um, and so, yeah, he he felt he he was the better player than Ramirez. And you know, maybe he's right. I mean, only one of them's in the Hall of Fame. Um, <laughs> but, man, I mean, Ramirez was awfully good. <laughs> yeah, it's also so cool that, you know, obviously – you know, you have tape running and you have hours and hours and hours of stuff to transcribe. And, and just like the little things you leave in the book, like when you mentioned how, you know, that Jim Rice came up with Fred Lynn and he goes, he went, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, Jim, you know, Fred Lynn came up with Jim Rice, things like that. I, I mean, for the people that have not purchased this book, absolutely have to buy it. There's a, the, the chapter on Roger Clemens alone, I think. And you mentioned Jeff Perlman, no disrespect. I mean, I believe he did the book on, on Roger Clemens about the rocket. I, I think I found more in this chapter, more, again, you humanize Roger Clemens and I, I enjoyed that chapter. And, and again, you know, I think you are so adept, uh, adept at picking the right things. Like, so, you know, Roger Clemens mentioned how he was on Don Drysdale's radio show. And, and you know, I guess in a break, he asked uh, Don Drysdale, asked Roger Clemens what Roger thought Don Drysdale's best pitch was. And Roger didn't know. And, you know, Drysdale said it was his second knockdown pitch. He said, because it showed the other batters that the first one wasn't a mistake. Uh, <laughs> That's so right. just, there's just so many great things. So, Eric, first of all, you know, what's up next for you? Because I'm thinking a great thing for you would be like the entire 1969 expansion. You know, I could see you doing a book on those teams, like the 69 Expos and Padres. But uh, what's next for you? <laughs> well, I, I yeah, I, I would love to do a Padre or an Expos book because um, my two kids go to college up there, and I, I love the city, and I know that they won a baseball team back up in Montreal in the worst of ways, and I hope they get one. Um, I have just started. Um, I just agreed to a deal with a publisher uh, to write a book on Fernando Valenzuela nice. and his impact, and his impact on. Uh, uh, not just uh, Latinos in LA, but Latinos all over the world that never watched baseball before until Fernando came on the scene. And also how he brought the Latinos out to Dodger Stadium because um, a lot of uh, Chicanos were kicked off their land uh, so they could build Dodger Stadium. Uh, and so 
for two decades, uh, the Latino community really, <laughs> they were not Dodger fans. <laughs> and for, and Fernando changed all, all that. Um, and his impact still lives today. So I thought that would be uh, a pretty fascinating story. So I am, but that won't be out for a couple of years. So uh, uh, we'll have some time between now and then. <laughs> we will definitely have you on before that for sure. It is always Thank a pleasure. Thanks for your time tonight. More importantly, thanks for all your books. Always great reads, always consistent, always thought provoking. We really appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you too, Mark. You have a great, great show. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Eric Sherman, author of Two Sides of Glory, the 1986 Red Sox, in their own words, plus many other great books.